Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Yeah, so when we were on Friday, whenever we were studying in Bible study, we were studying Ezekiel chapter 6, and it's all about the Lord tearing down the idols in people's in his people's lives. And he's basically talking about, hey, I'm going to tear down their idols, and then the carcasses of my people I'm going to pour onto them because they wouldn't submit to me and turn back to me. As we were going through that chapter here on Friday, the Lord just really impressed on me. My people need to make room for me and get those idols out of my life. And that's that's what I shared with Mason on Friday. So I love that you guys sang that song. It was awesome. Awesome. So I'm just going to open us up a prayer real quick. We're, we're starting such a rich book, and we definitely need the help of the Lord to, to go through Hebrews. I don't know how many of you have read it in preparation for this, but it's a rich, rich, deep, deep study, and we definitely need the Spirit to teach us all things. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time. God, we cancel any assignments from the enemy upon this church, upon the, those viewing online, upon the audiovisual system, upon everything that we are trying to do to serve you in such a mighty way. And so, God, we pray that you would sit your throne here that, Jesus, you would surround this campus with the legions of your angels, and that, Lord, we would hear from you and lean on your anointing right now, Lord. Teach us all things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to open up the book of Hebrews, and this is is such a cool book. If you really dive into it and just let the Spirit teach you everything out of it, it is so rich, it is so deep, and it really peels back more layers on who really is Jesus. And I think the one of the main points of the whole book is for us as believers to press on to maturity. And so what I loved about it was we studied Revelation, and all through Revelation we talked about the church is obviously gone from chapter 4, verse 1 on. And Jesus really has, he's laying up an inheritance for us in the millennium and beyond And what he's really impressing on me was, okay, we've talked about the end. Now let's talk about and give my people the reason why it's important for them to live right now in holding on to the faith and persevering to the end. And so that's really what this book is all about to the believer is to press on in the faith. And 1 John 2.27, we've read a lot, but look at the end of verse 28 Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's what it's all about is to not be ashamed, an unashamed bride. That's what it's about. So how do we have confidence and ensure that we are not ashamed when Jesus appears to take us home? So this whole book is about pressing on between now and the rapture. It's it's this gap of time for the church to press on from now until Jesus appears to take us home so that we have confidence when he appears, that you're looking for him to appear, that you're looking for him to return. So Hebrews is going to help us cling to and build that faith. 
as I was preparing this, the Lord showed me something out of Numbers 29.6 I had never really thought about before. But when you, get, when you read Numbers 29.6, beside the burnt offering of the month and his meat offering and the daily burnt offering and his meat offering and their drink offerings, according unto their manner for a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. And I was studying this and the burnt offering shows up all over the Old Testament. And the Lord really impressed on me the relationship of the burnt offering to us today. Because who is our high priest? See, we're going to learn so much about Jesus in Hebrews. Who is our high priest? Well, Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest now. If Jesus is our high priest, what is the burnt offering, the sacrifice made by fire, being offered continually to the Father? And the Lord really pressed this on me that it's us. We are that offering from Jesus to the Father right now. Remember Revelation 1.14? His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his, a his eyes were as a flame of fire. So Jesus, and you see this in Revelation 19.12, his eyes were as a flame of fire. So he's this flame of fire. In Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And then, of course, in Hebrews 12, the book we're starting to open up now, for our God is a consuming fire. See, in Deuteronomy 4, he's a consuming fire. His eyes are a flame as fire. He is, and we've talked about this a lot, about the sanctification process in your walk, how he wants to burn all of those infirmities away from you and burn that idolatry out of your life, refine you through that fire that only he can take you through, just like in Daniel in the fire with you. And when he burns all of that off of you and you become a polished, finished work for the Lord, he's offering that up to the Father in continuance to him. You are that offering. He's here to build a family. And like Deuteronomy 4 said, he's a jealous God. He's not jealous of, hey, you have something he doesn't. He's jealous for your affection. He's jealous for you. He's jealous that you would give your affection and, and attention to anything besides him. That's what he's jealous for. He's jealous for your commitment and your submission and your obedience. So once you submit and are fully obedient to the Lord, those eyes of fire, they keep refining you more and more and more. We're all a work in progress. But what's the end goal? Ephesians 5 that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the goal, is to present a church that is purified for the Father. And, and to do that, he has to have your permission. He's not going to force you into anything. So he's got to have your permission to refine something out of your life to make room in your life for him, to push those idols out and to cast them out. When you look at the tabernacle, I'm going to show this graph here in a second again. 
But remember, there is one door in the outer core of the tabernacle to get into the relationship. And then to enter the tent of meeting, there was an altar for the burnt offering in Exodus 40, verse 6. And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So when you look at this, and we showed this a couple times during Revelation, but what God really spoke to me a lot about, about this continually giving yourself to him and letting him refine you. See, the door on the outer court was Jesus. There's one door in. I am the door, Jesus said. Then you get in and there's that bronze altar, the sin offering, the burnt offering. You're laying your life down for him. Then you get to the brazen laver, which is the water. Remember, Jesus said, I am the living water. So you wash yourself with that water. That water today is the word of God, washing yourself with the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Then you get into the tabernacle in the holy place where the table of showbread was. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So you're continually consuming Jesus, consuming the word of God. I am the light of the world, letting him illuminate your life and being a light to the world around you at that point because you've deepened your relationship. Then it comes to the point where at the time you had to be a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. But remember when he was crucified, the veil was torn, open house, come one, come all, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the deepest relationship with the Lord. And so what he was really showing me about this was it's a progression of relationship. So as you get into Jesus, how deep do you want to go in your relationship with him? Do you want to go far enough and lay enough of your life on the line that you have access to the throne room of the universe, to the Holy of Holies. And that whole, the whole tabernacle and everything we've talked about before, but it all spoke of Jesus, the whole thing. John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was tabernacled. And so even in John, he's pointing to Jesus was the tabernacle. And every one of those he laid claim on. Like I went through, I am the door, I am the living water, I am the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. But the whole thing rested on silver sockets. It was carried on that wood, the wood poles with the silver sockets, silver always speaking of blood. And so the covenant for us to even get inside from the outer court rests on none other than the blood of Jesus. And that's for us today. And so the whole thing speaks of our relationship with God. So what we want to do as we go in and study Hebrews is, Think about how do we go from where we are to more maturity. That's what the whole book is about, is, is pressing on to maturity in Christ. And so Acts 17, 11, the namesake of the Bible study here on Friday mornings, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. We've got to be like the Bereans because the book of Hebrews it is full of these mysteries that the church has argued about and debated for literally thousands of years. And so it was written right between the time of Jesus, Jesus ascending and the temple being destroyed. It was right in between that time. So a lot of these people, I think we're going to touch on this in a minute, but a lot of the Christians that were Jews that had become Christians now were living in a world that Jesus had died for them they didn't have to go to the temple anymore, but the temple was still standing. And so it's, it's written to them to press on, to cling to the faith, despite the persecution they were undergoing for 
what the other Jews saw as leaving Judaism, but really they were pressing on to the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So there's 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. And if you ever want to do a Bible study, there's 66 books to choose from. It's Roger's favorite, favorite line. But there's, in the New Testament, it's Gospels and Acts, there's five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Acts is really kind of a continuation of those. Seven churches are written to, or nine books, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Three pastors are written to in four books, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And then there's eight books after all of that that kind of close the New Testament before Revelation. And they're really written to all of the Jewish people and the church. It's kind of written to the Jews that have become part of the church, but it has deep application for us. And it's Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, and then Jude. And then obviously the greatest book in the Bible, Revelation, the culmination of everything. So of the last eight books prior to Revelation, it's interesting that God did not address one of them to the church, but it's almost like God's pleading with the Jewish people to wake up, wake up. I fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. It's time for you to enter this new relationship I have for you in the church. But those last books are of great importance to us about pressing on through persecution to maturity. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, there are seven epistles written to the church by the head of the church, Jesus himself. So are the, there are disturbing warnings in those last eight books prior to Revelation. And Hebrews leans entirely on the Old Testament. It, it doesn't quote any other book of the New Testament. It leans completely on the Old Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it, which is amazing. In Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So everything written in the Old Testament is written for our learning. It's interesting that God kept the book anonymous. He didn't say who penned it, who he penned it through, I should say. But don't get hung up on it. It's not, it's not a big deal. The key of who wrote the book is 1 Timothy 3.16. It's the Holy Spirit. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, not a portion of it. Not a one verse only by God, not just the red letters in the Gospels, not just the red letters in Revelation 2 and 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So if you go down this trail, you can get lost in a deep rabbit hole of debate for 2,000 years on who wrote the book of Hebrews. And who wrote it? Why did they write it? Why did God leave it anonymous? There are some reasons. I, frankly, to be honest with you, I don't think it's important. I, I think the Holy Spirit wrote it, and he wrote it for us. And there are some reasons why the, the ghostwriter he used to pen it did not sign his name. But when you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, what is doctrine? So all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is what is right. For reproof what is not right, to reprove you, to correct you. So for correction is how to get it right. And for instruction is how to stay right. So you have these four, th four 
keys of what the Bible is to do. What is right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to stay right. So you've got you've to lean on the word of God to help you do that. So this letter from God is written to converted Jews being persecuted, as I mentioned. The Jews were considering leaving the faith in Jesus and returning to Judaism. And that's kind of the, the trouble with a lot of them that a lot of them were facing at this time. So the entire book is encouragement to them and us today to press on in the faith, to stay steadfast, to inherit everything that Jesus has prepared for us. And the Lord in Hebrews builds his case that Christ is, to, is superior to all Judaism by covering three main pillars, the angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. And so the Lord is saying all of that was great and was a symbol, a foreshadowing of what was to come. Jesus is above all of that, and you need to press on to him. He's now come in the flesh. He's died for you. Press on to this relationship with him now. And the book constantly uses the Old Testament as a reference. Remember in Hebrews 10, 7, it's a quote directly from Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, says Jesus in Psalms. So in the volume of the book, it's written of me. So during the course of the book, God deviates some from his main focus, and he structures the whole book around five major warnings to us, the believer, to not stray from the faith. There's these five warnings. The book contains some warnings that seem to contrast with the assurances written to the churches. And this is, these are some of the mysteries that God has woven in here that differentiate salvation from inheritance in the kingdom. And this has been debated for thousands and thousands of years, like I mentioned. But Romans 8, verses Hebrews 6 and 10, Ephesians 2, verses Philippians 1 and 2 Peter 1, there's these things out there that people debate all the time. So as we go through this, we'll, we'll tackle some of those and lean heavily on the Holy Spirit to illuminate for us what, what God is saying. But the book will take a wide-angle view of who Jesus is for us and our inheritance as believers but you have a risk of forfeiture. You can forfeit your inheritance. You can't lose your salvation. But like we talked about, you have a crown laid up for you that you can lose from Revelation 3.11. We'll look at that verse in a minute. So we just finished Revelation. So why should we keep our wedding garments clean? Hebrews has much to say on that. And keeping your wedding garments undefiled without spot, wrinkle, just like Ephesians 5, so that we're a glorious church that the Lord can present to the Father. So in this book, we'll see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. His priesthood supersedes the Levitical priesthood that started with Aaron. All of this declared by God while the temple was still standing. So here you have a divinely appointed religion led by divinely appointed priests officiating in a divinely appointed temple and holding these orderly services, and all of a sudden God is telling all of them, okay, that's done away with. You don't have to do that anymore. Open house. I've, I've come and conquered all of that. So how could they stop? It was because the one and final sacrifice had been divinely given in Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor 
that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's what he did. So he conquered all of it. And that's what this book is all about. The church was founded by a Jewish king and started with Jewish disciples. Gentiles could obviously be saved all throughout the Old Testament. You see that Rahab was saved. There's, there's actually seven Gentile brides in the Bible, Ruth being one of them. But this was a new relationship. This was where now Jesus was offering the kingdom to the Gentiles. And that's what blew the mind of the Jew. They could not believe that not only did they miss it, but then they forfeited the kingdom and God has opened it up to the Gentiles. And that's what the parable of the wedding feast is all about. Remember when the servants would reject him and they wouldn't come to the wedding. They would not come to the wedding feast. They wouldn't come. And so finally he opens it up and he tells the servants, go into all the highways and find anybody they'll listen and bring them. And it's what Jesus meant when he told them, had you accepted John the Baptist, it wouldn't have been John, or accepted me, it wouldn't have been John the Baptist. It would have been Elijah that had come from Malachi because Elijah is going to come in that, before that great and dreadful day. And what he was telling them is, I would have ushered in the kingdom had you just listened, but you blew it. And so this church right now, if you remember from Acts on, it was facing great persecution. I mean, people were being slaughtered and hunted everywhere. Stephen was killed in Acts 7. If you ever want to learn some interesting things about the Old Testament, read Acts 7. Stephen tells the Jewish people a lot of things that you don't even see in the Old Testament. But he, what he, when you go down his logic, what he's telling them is, you told Ab God told Abraham to go one direction. He went the other way until his dad died, then went. He told Moses, go save my people. And Moses fled and went to Midian for 40 years, then came back. Now, so you always, you Jews always miss it the first time and you get it the second time. That's the logic he's going down. And what he's telling them is, Jesus came and you missed it the first time, but you're going to get it the second time when he shows up in Revelation 19, you'll get it. And they hated that message from him, so they stoned him. And Saul was obviously the one that was overseeing that, later became Paul. But Stephen was murdered. James the apostle was killed in Acts 12. Others were being hunted. Look at Acts 8. Saul was consenting unto his death. That's Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women committed them to prison. So Paul is literally going around and dragging church believers out of their home and just putting them in prison. That's the persecution the church was under. So you have all these people that were Jewish men and women suddenly had their eyes open to Christ, were converted, saved. I shouldn't say converted, but they believed on the Lord. They were saved, and then they're being hunted by the Romans and by the Jews. And so their pressure to just, okay, if we just forget this and go back to temple sacrifices, we'll stop being persecuted. That's what they were facing. And it sounds really familiar. So all of that persecution continued, and these people were being tempted to apostatize. That was what they were being tempted with. Just conform and you will not be persecuted. You know, how familiar does that sound? 
Because right now, somebody sent us an article earlier this week. There's a lady in Finland that's being on trial for posting a Bible verse on her social media. That was it. All she did was post a Bible verse, and it was considered hate speech. So she's being persecuted and drugged through the court system, and they're trying to imprison her. That's in Europe. It's happening in Canada. Those pastors are being arrested in Canada. That bill passed that... If you even speak out on the biblical definition of marriage in Canada, you can serve up to five years in prison. Is that not insane? I mean, that is crazy that just in the time from when I was a kid to now, how different the world is. But it is spiraling quickly to that point where Jesus is going to say, fine, you don't want my word and you don't want my church. I'm bringing them home. And that's what we have to look forward to. And so as that time approaches, We've got to stay grounded in our faith and not be tempted to leave and apostatize because some leader somewhere says you can't talk about the Bible. And you don't answer to them. You answer to God. And they will answer to God. <laughs> Whether they like it or not, they know that they're going to have a reckoning someday. But this book was written by God to encourage them and us to press on to spiritual maturity. Look at Hebrews 5. For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again. In other words, you've been doing this a long time. Why do you keep having to be taught? You keep having to lean on someone else to teach you something. Again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. That is a scathing indictment from the Lord. That if you have need of the milk, the, the basic principles of God's word over and over and over, you are not pressing on to maturity. And he's calling them unskillful in the word of righteousness for he is a babe, not an age in spiritual maturity. He's a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of full age, even those who by reason of, uh, of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. See, when you, when you lean on the meat of the word, prophecy, Jesus on every page of the word of God, reading the whole counsel of God's word, you're getting into the meat of the word and your senses all of a sudden become open to, wow, there's this warfare all around us that is raging around us, warring for us. You start to be desensitized to the things of the world, and you realize the things of the Spirit. So the book of Hebrews, which we still need a, a special New City Church Scars and Stripes blend called Hebrews. Please, Chad. But the outline of the book, Jesus is the new and superior deliverer, chapters 1 through 7. A God-man better than the angels in chapters 1 and 2. A deliverer better than Moses in chapter 3. A leader better than Joshua in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. A priest better than Aaron in verses 14 through 16. Then Jesus is our high priest in chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Spiritual maturity, verses 12 through 6, 12 a new and better priestly covenant in chapter 6, verse 13, all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. 
is offered a better sacrifice for it was once and for all, provides better promises and opens the sanctuary for all. That's what Jesus did. The true and better response is faith in chapter 10, verse 26 through chapter 12. And then the closing remarks are chapter 13. So there's the outline of the book for Hebrews. The Holy Spirit wrote the book. I mentioned that a couple times. However, the ghostwriter did not sign the book like elsewhere in the Bible. And there, if you want my opinion on who wrote the book, not that, again, it does not matter, but I think it was Paul because there's a strong chance that it was Paul whom the Holy Spirit used. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, look what it says about halfway through the verse. Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Remember that 2 Peter is written to the Jews. So when did Paul write unto the Jews? Well, it probably was here, the book of Hebrews. And he calls that writing also at the very end, also the other scriptures. So every letter written through Paul ends with the same remark, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, oh, I'm sorry, Philippians and Philemon. And here in Hebrews 13, 25, how does the book end? Grace be with you all. Amen. Grace be with you all. So keep running the race for Jesus. Finish strong for him. You know, you can fall away from your walk and forfeit what is stored for you in heaven. Look at all of these words from the Lord to you to press on. 2 Peter 3.17 Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. You can fall from your own steadfastness. That's the point of 2 Peter 3, 17. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Don't, you don't want to be a castaway. And that has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your inheritance in the Lord. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit's writing through Paul here. Philippians 2.16, holding fat forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. See, you can run and labor in vain. It's that of the Ten Commandments, my favorite one, thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Don't take the name of the king and do nothing with it. Don't take it in vain. Do not do that. God even says in Exodus, I will not hold them guiltless who takes my name in vain. There's a forfeiture for that. Okay, Revelation 3.11, Jesus speaking, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So you've got to hold on to it. You have something laid up for you in heaven that you don't even know the glories and the beauty and the richness of. And Jesus is telling you, hold it fast that no man takes it. Now, how could a man take it? Well, to, to apostatize, to be led away, to, be, to forfeit your faith in the Lord. Hebrews 12.1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so, such, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. It reminds me of Mason's message he gave last summer. 
Don't let sin beset you. So great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset you. You can be led away so easily by sin. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the goal. So these five major warnings in the book to believers. There's the danger of drifting, chapter 2. The danger of hardening the heart in chapter 3 through 4.13. Danger of failing to mature in chapter 5, 11 through 6.20. The danger of willful sin in chapter 10. And the danger of refusing the Lord in chapter 12. And each of these warnings builds off the previous one. It's a progression of falling away. You know, nobody leaves and falls away from the Lord just overnight. It's a progression. It's a constant leading away. It's a constant giving yourself over to that sin and letting you slowly drag away. It's like you're on this voyage and the enemy takes your compass and just turns it one degree to the right. And you've got a 2,000 mile journey across the ocean. Where do you end up? Way off course by the time you get there but it's slow and it's a deliberate attack by the enemy. And that's what he's trying to do. And each warning builds upon the previous, ultimately culminating with apostasy. So Hebrews gives the warning and Revelation gives the outcome. Remember <laughs> Revelation 3.16, it does not get any more straightforward than this. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Lukewarm, refusing and being indifferent to God. That's the point. So why does God give us the warnings? It's to encourage us to press on in maturity to obtain our inheritance with the Lord. If you remember from Revelation, we went through the five crowns in the Bible, the seven promises of Jesus to the overcomer. Those are just some of them, but that's not an all-inclusive list, I don't believe. Jesus never said this is all of them. This is just an example of them. But there are three books that complete a trinity on the love of Christ, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And each one lists 17 items that cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35 through 39, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. All three complete a trinity of Habakkuk 2, 4. Behold his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So those three books, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, answer that verse, and all three of them quote that verse. So who are the just? That's the book of Romans. How shall they live is the book of Galatians. And what is faith? That's the book of Hebrews. And all three of them quote Habakkuk 2.4. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10, 38, which is incredible. So the Lord's taking that one verse, and he's written three books on it from Habakkuk. It's just incredible. For us as believers, what, it's, what is at stake? You know, what do we have to lose to forfeit? It's not our salvation, John 10, 28. And praise God, you cannot lose your salvation. If it was up to any of you in this room, it would be lost already. I promise you. It would totally be gone. John 10, 28 and 29. And I give unto them eternal life. Eternal sounds like eternal to me. He didn't say I give unto them partial life for a little while. If they, no. Jesus said I give unto them eternal life. 
and they shall occasionally, hopefully not perish. That's not what it says. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So you have the hands of the son and the father, both clinging onto you with all they have. And praise God they are, because we would all blow it somehow. If your salvation counted on you doing something, it would have been lost a long time ago. Because you can't do it. You can't add anything to what Jesus did, and you can't take anything away from what he did. He did it all once and for all, and it's for you, and it's up to him to hold on to it for you. The problem is then, and this is where the church has become, in my opinion, the last 30 years, somewhat weak, is not teaching the difference between salvation and inheritance. Because all those verses we just went through is a cry from the Lord to press on, and it's created all this debate on, well, why are you pressing on? Do you have to hold on to your salvation? I guess you got to hold on to your salvation. So, so it's created all these occultic views of you won't really know if you're saved until you get to heaven, if you pressed on enough, and you know they try to make it fit in this box, and it doesn't fit. The difference in what we're going to see all through the book of Hebrews here is salvation versus inheritance. That's the difference. So you can lose your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We've looked at this a lot in 1 Corinthians. The Lord's burden in this book is not the rescuing of the lost from hell. It is rather the bringing of children into glory. That is his passion in this book, is to drive you to press on. It's like he's in this warfare. He stormed the beach at Normandy. We're all with him. And he's walking up the mountain with his sword drawn and he's looking back going like, hey, are you guys coming? Are you guys coming with me? I'm, I'm leading the charge here and the enemy is dying at my right and left hand all the way as I walk through these fields. Why are you guys not with me? He's walking through just like in Jericho in Joshua 5. And the, and the reason is the Israelites blew it eventually was they stopped letting him lead the charge into the battle. They were looking for an earthly king and they were going when the Lord said, don't go. And they totally got off track. But there are three tenses of salvation here, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And justification is, remo- is being saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is removal from the power of sin. And then glorification is, is removal from the very presence of sin. That's where we're with him. But 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, I put this back in here so you guys would have it in your notes. But at the judgment seat of Christ, everything you did is being tried by fire. And it's either silver, precious stones, gold, silver, precious stones, or it's wood, hay, stubble. One is combustible by fire, the other is not. And that's what remains is what you did in the spirit. It's not your salvation. Look at the very end. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Okay, that's, you have an appointment with the king. And that is, that appointment is to see what did you do in the spirit versus what did you do in the flesh. 
And Jesus wants you to serve him so that when you appear, everything you did in your life is for the spirit and for the kingdom. And Hebrews leans on the Exodus generation as an example. They were under bondage in Egypt, redeemed and saved by the blood, led through the baptism by part of the Red Sea. Then they had what should have been an 11-day journey that took them 40 years of faithlessness. Think about that. They were a redeemed people from Exodus 6, but they roamed around the wilderness like they had no clue what they were doing because they didn't trust in the Lord. There were over a million people saved out of Egypt, and all of them, only two, inherited God's promises. Only two, Joshua and Caleb. If you were of the age of accountability, the age of 20 or above, equipped for war, only two of them inherited, Joshua and Caleb. So you can lose your inheritance. Remember Moses, he was on the Mount Transfiguration. He was saved, but he did not inherit. God told him, you'll be able to see the promised land, but you'll never enter it. Because he blew it the second time when God said, speak to the rock. And instead he took his staff and he struck it again because he was angry. He was tired of the walk with the Lord. He was getting weary and he blew it. And God said, okay, that's it. You're done. Think about Elijah. Elijah was prophesying and he was doing these great things for God. Well, then he went into a cave. He was so frustrated. And he said, Lord, I guess I'm the only one left. In all of Israel, I'm it. And God said, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 guys here and these other prophets, and you're letting pride set in. So you're done. Your mantle's being passed on to Elisha. And that from that point on, Elijah's ministry was over because he, he strayed away. And those are extreme examples, but that same thing can happen to you and I. That's the point. So Moses, again, he was saved, but he did not inherit. The prodigal son saved, but he blew his inheritance. Look at Colossians 3. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. That's the promise, the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. So one of the central themes of the entire Bible is Jesus building a kingdom, an unashamed bride for the Father. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, death entered the world by one man. And not to get down a, a rabbit trail, but someone was asking me after we did the, the gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, what about dinosaurs? They definitely were after Adam fell because death didn't happen before. By, death, by one man, death entered the world. But anyway, that's just as a side note. For as Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. That is what Jesus is about right now. He is trying desperately to build a kingdom to deliver it to the Father. That's part of what the millennium is all about. But you and I have a role in that kingdom. And so he, this whole book is about pressing on because he's going to deliver us up to the Father. 
when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. The last enemy is death. That's the end of the millennium, when death is no longer. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. And this is the goal of it all, that God may be all in all. That's the goal. God's building a family. There are seven heavenly references in Hebrews. Christ in the heavenlies in 1.3, the heavenly calling in 3 verse 1, the heavenly gift in 6 verse 4, heavenly things in 8 verse 5, the heavenly country in chapter 11 verse 16, the heavenly Jerusalem, one of my favorites, in chapter 12, verse 22, in our names written in the heavens, in chapter 12, verse 23. Look at that verse. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. That's us. We're written there. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, with all of that, we'll actually read a few verses in Hebrews. Chapter 1, the first, we're going to take the first three verses. That all was a buildup to give you guys an idea of what is this book all about. Hopefully it made sense. Verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past, in time past, unto the fathers by the prophets. So sundry times, it literally means many portions or many different dispensations or portions of time God has spake to his people. In diverse manners, such as similes, metaphors, there's allegories all over the scripture that God uses. This is also sealing the authority of the Old Testament. He spake in time past, meaning Romans 15, all things written aforetime. In verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. That word worlds in the end of verse 2 literally means time domains. So by whom also he made the time domains. Jesus made that. In John 4, 25, remember the woman of Samaria? The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. That's what verse 2 is saying here. Spoken unto us by the Son. Hebrews 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Incredible. Heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things from Galatians 4. The son is the father's heir. An heir means he is the successor to everything, and that's from Genesis 21 and Acts 2, 36. The guarantee of God is also absolute from Isaiah 14 and, and 46. And who is heir with Christ? That's us. We are heirs, co-heirs with Christ in Romans 8, 14. For as many as were led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we as the, are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I hope that blows your mind that you are a joint heir with the one that created it all anyway. He doesn't have to give us any of it, but he's going to give us all of it. That's how loving Jesus is. But look at the end of the passages. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. There's never a condition on salvation. There's a condition on being a joint heir. It's pressing on to maturity. That's the difference. And so we've got to rightly divide the word of God. But look at everything you learn in the first three verses of this entire book. Jesus is heir of all things. We're co-heirs with him. Jesus made the worlds or time domains. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by his power. Colossians 1.17, by him all things are held together. Jesus made purification of sin once and for all. We did nothing to earn our salvation. To try and add to it denies the, the finished work of Jesus. And they set down on majesty on high. And all of that is in the first three verses of the book. This is, it is a rich, rich book. This is not a book to get in the water with your ankles just wet a little bit. This is one to dive in the deep end. Just go with it. Whether you can swim or not, just jump in. So a call to action. So Hebrews, this is going to be a fun study. We're going to go through this. We'll cover chapter one next week. But getting in the word of God and building your faith that's what it's all about in Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? And I'm going to share a story of a vision real quick, if you guys can bear with me for just five minutes. I know it's 11 o'clock, and we're all hungry. But faith, faith, and what is it all about? Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, go to the next slide real quick, Austin. Okay, so the Lord has been really been impressing on me for the last, I don't know, month or so, that the enemy, what is happening at New City and happening in the lives of families in the community, the enemy does not want to occur. And there is a spiritual warfare going on for the lives of the families in this church, the families watching online all around the world, their children, for us, for our family, for our household, uh, there is a war. We, we have raised a standard against the enemy in a war that is absolutely real and, and raging all around us. And there's a target on New City. I promise you, there's a target. And the Lord has been really impressing this on me for a while now. And what he told me was, about a month ago, to start praying Psalm 91 over everybody and over the families, over the church, over our community. And so I've been doing that. And he took me yesterday morning just to show me how real the warfare is for us and against us. And I, I'm going to explain this the best I can. But he grabbed me at 545 in the morning yesterday, and he took me in the spirit. And I immediately was face to face with Satan. And it was like, it was as real as you and I standing together and shaking hands after this service. And I was standing there like right here, nose to nose in the spirit. And I could see, I could look around, but I couldn't make out his characteristics of him physically, but I knew it was him. 
And immediately I started yelling the name of Jesus, not in a I'm terrified way, but in a battle cry. If you want to try to bring this, Jesus will take you down kind of way. And I started just yelling, you're, you will bow at the name of Jesus. You will flee at the name of Jesus. He has all authority of you. His name is above all names. His name is the most high. And I was just doing that over and over, super loud and pointing at him. And all of a sudden, I thought I was about to wake up out of it and snap out of it. But the Lord took me again. And I was like looking straight up. And there was a a mountain, a giant mountain I was under with this hillside. It was like above our house or something. I'm doing the best I can to describe it. But all of a sudden, there were just legions of angels rushing down this mountainside. And I could see that they were all riding something, but I couldn't see them. But I knew it was the good guys because we outnumber them two to one. Uh, Satan took a third of the angels with them. We've got two thirds left on our side. And they came rushing down and hit like the floor of our house and just spread out everywhere, like instantaneously. And took their, and I heard this voice say, they're taking their positions. And it was just joyous. And Satan was gone. And the enemy had fled because of Psalms 91, which the Lord has been telling me for a long time to pray over all of us that he, he would give his angels charge over us and to fight for us and to, and to ride in on our behalf. And so there's a warfare going on in New City, and, and Jesus is looking for those that want to press on to maturity and raise a standard against the enemy and to be a part of Gideon's 300 that wouldn't bow the knee to the world, that won't flee in fear when Satan raises up an attack against your family, you take the fight to him and you say, the Lord rebuke you. That's what Michael did in the book of Jude against Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. You don't try to rebuke him with your name. You rebuke him with the name of Jesus because at his name, every knee will bow and every knee will confess that he is Lord. Satan is going to confess that Jesus is Lord and we're gonna get to witness it someday. But it just, after all of that happened yesterday morning, you go next slide, Austin. After all of that happened, the Lord really, he spoke to me all day yesterday. He just said, Matt, you've been feeling like there's this attack on the church and on your family. And not only were you correct that there's been trying to be an attack on everyone, I just wanted to show you who's trying to lead that attack. And it was none other than the serpent himself, the adversary, Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And I talked about this the last couple of weeks in Let There Be War. I I mentioned how Satan does not want to fight with you. He wants to kill you. And this week, the Lord reminded me and he said, Matt, you are correct. But I want to remind you in Genesis 3.15 that I want to kill him. Because it's my foot that crushes the head of the serpent. And he said, listen, The enemy wants to take you out, but I am here to take him out. And we've got to lean on Jesus. And one of the ways he's going to attack you and try to take you out is exactly like we looked at with Israel. Is that as they were going through the land in their walk with the Lord, and he told them to take down these certain territories of everything that was in it, there were three of them that they didn't do that to. 
the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights, and it plagues them to this day because they didn't listen. It's a spiritual warfare, and they did not clean house when God told them to. And their generations have suffered ever since. And the enemy, the enemy does not want you to clean out your house. The enemy wants you to put it in a closet somewhere and say, well, you can't really see it. At least it's put away and it's okay, right? It'll just be there in a closet and nobody will know the wiser. It's exactly what happened in the book of Judges. Remember in Judges, they killed the enemies and they accepted the little dangling crescent moons and endured them on their camels. And so what I want to close today with is just read Psalm 91 over you guys. It's 16 verses. It's short, but this is the prayer we're going to close with. And Psalm 91, if you want to read it with me. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. The word of God is his truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And in the beginning was the word. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh to thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he, here's verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over thee. And yesterday, that's what exactly I saw, were them charging in and taking positions of battle for our church and all of you here and your families and our family. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. And here's the last three verses, God's promise to you. This is the Father speaking. Because he, you, hath set his love upon me, the Father, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name, he shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And that closes Psalm 91. Praise God. What an amazing psalm. So I'm, I'm just, I've been praying. I want all of you to know that. And if you think about it during the week, pray that over all the families. Pray that over our church. Pray that over Randy and I, if you can. Just pray for us. Pray for everybody. Pray for your family. Psalm 91 is the, is the psalm. Uh, he will give his angels charge over us. And he's fighting for us. So with that, I'll just close us in prayer. If you are watching online and you need Jesus, reach out to us. Romans 10.9. It's simple. Uh, we got a really cool note from someone in Uganda last week that's watching. How amazing is that? We got notes from people in Australia. I don't even know how they're finding us, but it's really cool. So Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart 
that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple in what we've been talking about all throughout the message. So we'll close in, in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for Hebrews. God, thank you for the richness of the book of who Jesus is on our behalf. God, we thank you that we have a better covenant to walk into with you, a relationship, Jesus, a relationship that you are calling us to, to be refined by your eyes of fire and to walk through that consuming fire. But Lord, not a hair on our head will be touched because we are submitting it at your feet and you will be in the fire with us and come through the other side as a refined, purified, precious, precious church for you, an unashamed bride. So thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Be with all of us as we leave this place. And we take Psalm 91 as our refuge under the wings of the Almighty. And you will set us upon high, Lord. Thank you for that. We pray all of these things in the mighty name that's above all names, Jesus. Amen.